Well, lying in a hospital bed on the eve of his open-heart surgery, a patient asked his doctor, Can you fix my heart? Well, Dudley Johnson is a skilled cardiologist, but a man of few words. And so he replied, Sure, and walked away. Well, after the 12-hour surgery, again, the patient asked his doctor, In light of the blocked arteries that you bypassed, how much more blood supply will I have now? Well, again, Dr. Johnson gave a terse reply. All you'll ever need and walked off. Well, as the patient was being discharged, his wife questioned Dr. Johnson. How will the surgery affect my husband's future quality of life? Well, the doctor took a few seconds and then he answered, Ma'am, I fixed your husband's heart. His quality of life is up to him. And this sums up Romans chapter 6. For Jesus has fixed our rebellious hearts. In Christ, we're new inside. But now, our future quality of life depends on three choices. First, do we know that in Christ, our inner man is not the same. We're dead to sin. We're alive to Christ. Second, have we reckoned these truths to be so? Are we living them out? Has the cross changed the way we see ourselves? Have we really embraced a new identity in Christ? And then third, are we presenting our members, our minds and our hands and our feet and our eyes and our tongues in ways that live out and reinforce this new identity that we now possess? On the cross of Jesus, our old man was crucified with his only son. Thus, our rebellious hearts were replaced with compliant hearts, hearts that love God and love each other. We've been transformed by God's Spirit in the inner man. Now the goal is to get the rest of us in tow. Romans 6 teaches us that Christians are free from sin, whereas Romans 7 teaches us that we're free from the law. In Christ, we died to sin and we died to the law. And both realizations are vital for victory. You see, a believer in Jesus is fixated on God's love and pardon and power until the law gets interjected. Once the law gets interjected into our life, now our attention invariably shifts. Here's an example for you. Let's say I impose a law. Everybody's got to live under this law. Vanilla ice cream is prohibited. Stay away from that creamy, delicious vanilla ice cream. Yet the more you think of keeping that law, the more you want a bowl of vanilla ice cream, don't you? The more you resist it, the stronger the temptation is to eat it. You see, the best way to resist vanilla ice cream is to cultivate a desire for chocolate ice cream. To replace it with something better. And this is how you live victorious over sin. Under the law, I'm solely focused on resisting sin. The issue in my life is dealing with the sin in my life. But under grace, the issue is the sun in my life. My focus is on all that I have in Jesus. And it's the joy of Jesus that lessens sin's appeal. That neutralizes the temptation. See, if you want to live in victory, preoccupy yourself with following the sun, not fighting the sin. 
are not just fighting the sin. Let's pick up where we left off last week in chapter 7, verse 14. Paul writes, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Now here's a new word, but a familiar concept. Paul calls himself carnal. And whenever you hear the word carnal, think chili. Think Caitlin's delicious chili that we had tonight. And there are two types of chili. There's plain chili that nobody likes. And there's chili con carne or chili with meat, which is the good kind of chili, by the way. Carne or carnal is Latin for meat or flesh. Recall what we learned in chapter 6. We all consist of two parts. The inner man is the part of us that lives forever. That when we die, it goes to be with Jesus. The outer man is the part of us that dies and returns to the dust. The word flesh is a synonym for the outer man, that part that dies and goes back to the dust. So carnal is someone who lives according to the flesh. Rather than be influenced and empowered by God's spirit, spiritually, he lives as if he's apart from God and leans only on natural, physical resources. Remember in chapter 6, verse 6, Paul used two more terms. He mentioned the old man. That's the old sin nature. That was the nature that we inherited from Adam. This was the rebellion inside us that fueled our selfishness and our lust and our pride. And it was this rebellion on the inside that shaped the person I used to be on the outside. Evil thoughts and habits govern what I did and said. Paul referred to this as the body of sin, or we could call it again, the flesh. When I came to Christ, the old man was crucified. I'm now dead to sin. The sin nature that I used to possess is eradicated. But the flesh, this outer man, this body of sin that the old man or that sin nature had programmed to sin remains my enemy. The old man is dead, but the body of sin keeps his memories alive. Old habits die hard, in other words. Sinful desires are easily conjured up. And when I fall into those sinful habits, rather than lean on who I am in Christ, I become a carnal person. And carnality can show up in two ways. Unrighteousness is the result of a person who's in Christ and dead to sin, but fails to reckon it so. They just sort of drift back and never leave the life of sin that they once lived. They never embrace a new identity in Christ. But another form of carnality is self-righteousness. And here's the Christian who wants to please God, but tries in his own efforts or in his flesh. It's still selfishness and pride at work. He relies on himself, his flesh, not the Holy Spirit, to try to please God. It's a religious kind of carnality. This is the sin of church folk. And apparently, this was Paul's problem. Notice verse 15, he says, For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. Boy, Paul's actions contradict his desires. He wants to obey God, but he lacks the follow-through. 
You know, it's unfortunate that some commentators think Paul is speaking of himself as an unbeliever. I don't think so. Here Paul says that he wants to do good. He has godly desires. He couldn't say that if he wasn't a Christian. It's obvious to me that Paul is a bona fide believer, but he is also a bewildered believer. He has godly ambitions, but he lacks the willpower to carry them out. And have we ever been there? We have, haven't we? What I want, I don't. I say no, but then here I go. It happens to us. He elaborates in verse 16. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. In other words, he agrees that the law is right in condemning him. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And this is an astonishing statement. Let me read it again. It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. How can Paul sin and then dare say, it is no longer I who do it? Unless a real transformation had actually occurred in his deepest part, in his spirit. Paul understood that the believer experiences a fundamental change when he comes to Christ. In the inner man, the eternal part of Paul, the real Paul we could say, Paul was clean. He was sinless. You recall the former bumper sticker? You see it a lot. Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. I get the sentiment. We're human. We're still very capable of sin. But spiritually speaking, Christians are perfect. For in the deepest part of who we are, we have become new creations in Christ. You see, the real you, the the spirit part of you, isn't the problem. Paul says, it's no longer I who sin, but sin that dwells in me. What's that? He said, well, the inner part of him no longer sins. But the outer part of him, the flesh, the body of sin, that's where his problem is. That's where the sin dwells in him. The thought patterns and the habits that he carried over from his past, that he allows the world to teach him now, that's where he has his problems. See, I still have remnants of my former life lodged in my flesh that rise up at times and lead me astray. And I'm responsible for my flesh and its deeds. But fundamentally, it is not me. This is so important to realize. This is what it it means to take an identity in Christ, to really know who we are in our deepest part. Verse 18, for I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Notice he specifies, it's in my flesh that nothing good dwells. Remember, Paul is thinking of himself as a dichotomy. In other words, an inner man and an outer man. He's seeing himself as two parts. In the inner man, Paul is new in Christ. He says, it is no longer I who sin. He's talking about the inner person. The outer man is the problem. For there he still sins. He says, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. And here is every Christian's miracle and dilemma. The old man is dead. I no longer have that sin nature. That's the miracle. Yet here's the dilemma. Sin still lingers in my members, and it can trip me up. Here's Christianity in a nutshell. Paul is a redeemed spirit 
packaged in a corrupt flesh. And so are you. In the last half of verse 18, Paul restates his dilemma. He says, For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do I do not do, but the evil I will not to do that I practice. Notice how Paul frames his struggle. The inner man wants to do good, but the flesh betrays him to do evil. He has total confidence in what God has done in his spirit, but zero confidence in the abilities of his flesh. See, our problem is two-sided. First, we fail to see ourselves in Christ. We fail to realize what Jesus has done, the extent of the work that Christ has accomplished in us. But then second, we fail to see that nothing good dwells in our flesh. And thus, we keep trying to please God in our own efforts rather than trust in the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. See, here's our problem. We don't lean totally on the Spirit because we refuse to be completely weaned off the flesh. This is why we keep falling on our face. This is why Paul says, the things that I try to do, I end up not doing. The things that I don't want to do, I fall into. Victory lies within us. The work has been finished on the cross, and Jesus has accomplished it in our hearts. What was done on the cross is now done in our hearts. But we have to live out that victory by faith. We need to trust in what God has done and what He can do. Verse 20 tells us, Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Now let me try to simplify this all for you and give you an illustration. The Philadelphia Phillies have a mascot. It's called the Philly Fanatic. On the outside, he's green, he's a furry monster with an ugly snout. He does crazy things in addition. He rides a motorcycle, he taunts opponents, he incites the crowd. But when you see him on TV, remember that that exterior is just a costume. It's just an outside. It's an outer person. There's a man on the inside making a six-figure salary, by the way. And it's the person on the inside that's the real person. You know what I'm saying? Now, the same is true for you. At times, we all get kind of green with envy, don't we? We all kind of get furry a little bit and get, get our dander up. Some of us have a monster-like temper, and we do crazy things. But understand, as a Christian, that's not the real you. The true Sandy is underneath the fuzzy exterior. The spiritual part of me is holy in God's sight. The guy inside the fanatic is not the monster. Yet it's still, he's still responsible for the monster-like behavior that that costume does. And this is Paul's frustration. In other words, how do we tame the monster? He sums it up. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. In other words, he says, I love God. I want to do good. But I lug around members in my body who don't want to cooperate. Can you identify? Boy, I can. He says, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. It's on the inside. He loves God. He delights in God. 
But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. And this is every Christian struggle. We want to follow God, but our flesh, this body of sin, sabotages our obedience. Listen to our struggle set to a rhyme. Within my earthly temple, there's a fight. Part of me is love and part is spite. There's a part that's brokenhearted for my sin. There's a part of me that's stubborn, sits and grins. Deep inside, I love my neighbor as myself. At other times, I prefer to sit alone upon the shelf. But now hear the conclusion. From much care, I should be free. If I could only, if I could once for all determine which of these is me. And see, that's the key. How do you see yourself? Which of these is you? Are you a new person in Christ? If you've given your life to Christ, the Bible says you are. Do you know that you know that you know what He's done in your heart? Do you reckon it so? Do you count it so and live as if it's so? And do you present your members to act accordingly? Or do you see yourself as trying to earn your way to God by obeying the law? I believe that was Paul when he wrote chapter 7. He followed Christ, yes, but he lived as if he were under the law. And this is why he concludes in verse 24. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And here Paul draws on some vivid imagery. See, Rome had an extremely harsh sentence for ruthless murderers, heinous murderers. The corpse of the person who'd been murdered was strapped to the man who murdered him. The perpetrator would literally carry around the rotting flesh of his victim. Wherever he went, the corpse went with him. He was never free. And this is how Paul saw himself. He says, oh, wretched man that I am. He's attached to the rotting corpse of his flesh, the body of sin, as he puts it. And until he dies, he carries it with him. What an awful dilemma. But there's hope. For in verse 25, Paul answers the question that he asked, Who will deliver me? He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. He says, who shall deliver me? Not what shall deliver me, but who shall deliver me? His salvation doesn't come in a 12-step program or a psychological principle or a pill. Or a procedure. No, his salvation comes in a person. And that person's name is Jesus. Who shall deliver me? Paul says, thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I love how J.B. Phillips renders verse 25. He says, I thank God there is a way out through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I'm thankful too. See, the answer to the Christian's dilemma is not self-discipline and the law, but it's self-abandonment and the Spirit. It's not keeping laws, but it's walking by faith in God's Spirit. And in chapter 8, we're taught how. 
Now, before we delve into chapter 8, let me steer your thoughts in a helpful direction. It's amazing how meanings of certain words change over time. I'm sure you've noticed this. Forty years ago, hardware was nuts, nails, and washers. Hard drive involved maneuvering your car up a steep mountain. Boot you wore on your foot. Virus made you sick. Mouse carried the virus. And dump was where the mouse lived. Menu helped you order your food. Bite was what you did to your food. And spam was the type of meat you hoped was not on the menu. Before computers arrived, desktop was the top of a desk. Laptop was the top of your lap, and load was when a heavy person sat on your laptop. Of course, today we recognize these terms as computer jargon. And this is how I want you to think now as we move on into Romans chapter 8. For in a sense, we all are like computers in that we exist with hardware and software. See, think of your spirit, the inner man, as the hardware. But hardware is controlled by what? By software, by mindsets and beliefs and presuppositions and perspectives. Now imagine two types of software, two operating systems, if you will, loaded onto your hard drive. Paul calls them the law of the spirit of life and the law of sin and death. Now each day when you wake up, you have a choice to make. Which operating system will you boot up? Which approach to life will you let govern your thoughts and your actions? Will you orientate your life around the Spirit of God? Or will you gravitate toward things of the flesh? Now with that in mind, let's jump into one of the most hopeful chapters in all of the Bible, Romans chapter 8. It begins with a bang. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. At the end of chapter 7, there was a lot of condemnation, wasn't there? He said, oh, wretched man that I am. But when you come to Christ, there is no condemnation any longer. Paul says, if you keep God's Son, the issue in your life, then even when you stumble, you're not condemned for it. I'm condemned only if I live under the law. He says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. You know, when an airplane takes off, two different principles are at play. The law of gravity puts a drag on the airplane and pulls it down. Whereas the laws of thrust and lift supersede gravity and propel the airplane upwards. Likewise, the upward life of the spirit overrides the downward pull of sin. We soar if we hold close to the Spirit of God. It's the law that drags us down. But faith overrides the law and draws us upwards. Here's the question, though. What principle is at work in your life? What's running on your hard drive right now? Is it law or is it faith? Is it flesh or is it spirit? Is it you or is it Christ? He says, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, 
God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, in other words, God's law had no flaw. The problem was always me. The sin in my flesh couldn't conform to the law's perfection. Remember Paul's earlier conclusion, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Thus, it's up to my flesh, if it's up to my flesh to keep the law, then I'm going to fail. I love this little jingle. To run and work, the law commands, yet gives me neither feet or hands. But better news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. You see, the law set the bar, but we couldn't rise to it in the flesh. Our flesh isn't strong enough. Our flesh doesn't have the the spring to reach the bar. Only the Holy Spirit gives me spring enough to jump over the bar. Thus, we fulfill the law, not by keeping it or trying to keep it, but by walking in the Spirit. He says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Where's your mind set? Do you focus on the things of the flesh or do you focus on the things of the Spirit? For to be carnally minded or fleshly minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. How do you walk in the Spirit? Let's go back to our computer illustration. When you come to Jesus... God installs a new hard drive inside of you. God takes out the old equipment and he puts a new nature within you. And by the way, you have top of the line gear. But the hardware's efficiency depends on the software. If old software is running on new equipment, it won't perform very well, will it? It'll malfunction. Go back to chapter 7. The things I want to do, I can't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I end up doing. That's why you've got to reboot. Stop using the operating system entitled the things of the flesh and log on to the system that's entitled the things of the spirit. Now, I don't know much about computers, but I've learned one truth over the years. When all else fails, reboot. This also applies to our spiritual lives. When I start to struggle, When I find myself in chapter 7, when I do what I hate and I don't do what I want, I reboot. I check my mindset. Am I laboring on my own as if it's up to me? Or am I trusting in the work that God has done in my spirit through the cross? Do I see myself as a new person in Christ? Am I logged on to a new identity or am I logged on to that old identity? We need to reboot. We need to shift from the flesh to faith, from grunt to grace, from carnally minded to spiritually minded. Are you operating spiritually or in the flesh? Remember, a carnal mind is death. A spiritual mind is life and peace. Verse 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. you got to know, the flesh 
and the Spirit. You know, us by ourselves and then God's Spirit, the flesh and the Spirit are at odds with each other. He says that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The flesh and the Spirit are like the Hatfields and the McCoys. They're like Coke and Pepsi. They're like the Bulldogs and the Yellow Jackets. They're bitter rivals. See, the goal of the flesh, the goal of your flesh is what? It's to make yourself look good. It's to make yourself feel good. That's the goal of our flesh. Whereas the goal of the Holy Spirit is to glorify God. That's why these two are at odds with each other. Try to run both operating systems at the same time, and you end up back in chapter 7. You're stuck in frustration. That's why Paul says in verse 9, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Every true believer has God's Spirit inside of them. If you belong to Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. And we have the power, because we have the Spirit, we have the power to live victoriously. We just need to learn how to operate from a spiritual mindset. Paul says, and if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If we rely on our own resources, we're in trouble. Our body is dead due to sin. That's why we have to live and move in the Spirit. Paul is telling us we need to shelve our do-it-yourself attitude and we need to have faith in God. Verse 11. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. This is an amazing verse. Since the same Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead, since He now lives in us, That means incredible power, resurrection power, are available to you and me. It's been said, we depend on Jesus for our eternal life, but we depend on the Spirit for our internal life. That's what we learn from Romans chapter 8. And in the next few verses, we're going to be taught how to relate to the Holy Spirit, how to live by the Spirit, how to be led by the Spirit, and how to be loved by the Spirit. Jeanette, she lives in New York City. Because of the crime in her neighborhood, she took judo. Later, she took karate. She learned all the kicks, all the punches, all the pressure holes. She eventually became a black belt, a martial arts expert. Finally, the day came when all of her training was put to the test. She was attacked by a purse snatcher. And Jeanette defended herself admirably. But not with her martial arts. She beat the guy up with an umbrella. That's what she did. And here's the point of the story. What you know theoretically may not be what you draw on in reality. And you see, this happens in our struggle with sin. We're in Christ. But so often when temptation comes, do we trust in the Spirit? Or do we try to cope? With the, with the flesh, with our own strength. See, again, we need to be spiritually minded and we need to rely on what we have in Christ if we want to live in victory. He says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. 
For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul is saying we owe nothing to the flesh. You know, we think it's a do-it-yourself. We we all like that do-it-yourself attitude. You go to Home Depot all the time, don't you? You like that do-it-yourself attitude. But Paul is saying we need to shake our do-it-yourself attitude. That's the flesh. Often we think the answer to everything is more willpower, more elbow grease. Well, I just need to work harder at it. But as a result, we leave no room for the Holy Spirit to do His work. At best, the changes we can make are temporary. But if we want long-lasting transformations, it takes a work of the Spirit. This is why Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, this should be our strategy. Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Notice verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Boy, this Greek word translated led, it means to be driven. It means to be propelled. To be led. Does it mean to be dragged around? No, the law led from the outside. The law kind of drug you around. But the Spirit leads from the inside out. It drives you. He propels you. In basketball, one player can go on a hot streak and start winning games single-handedly. When this happens, we like to say, he's carrying his team. The whole team is riding on his accomplishments. And this is what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives. He wants to carry us. The Spirit of God is the difference maker. Verse 15, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. I love that. The spirit of adoption. And we've been born of the spirit and we've been adopted of the spirit. You know, sometimes in a card game, especially if you're playing with my wife, it frustrates me to no end. You know, she'll, I'll win the trick and then she'll throw down a trump card on top of that. Needlessly. Why she does that, I don't know. But you throw that trump card down on, and you know what we, we always say? We say, well, we double won that. You ever use that expression? None of you ever play cards. I'm sorry. But here, here we learn that the Holy Spirit has double won us. He has. We're born again by the Spirit, but now we're told that we're adopted by the Spirit. We've been double won. And an adopted child has a great advantage. Anybody adopted? Any of you adopted? An adopted child has a great advantage. You always know you were wanted. That's that's what God is saying to us by giving us the spirit of adoption. He wants us to know He loves us. The Spirit enables us to cry out, Abba, we're told. That means Daddy. The term implies a closeness. It's the Holy Spirit who puts us on intimate terms with our Father God. And then Paul says in verse 16, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now I say this reverently, but the Holy Spirit is like a dial tone. You pick up the phone, you get the dial tone, it confirms the connection. And the Holy Spirit is what confirms our connection to God. He provides us the inner witness of God's presence in our lives. You know, I could tell my kids over and over that I love them, but if I never hug them, if I never touch them, my words would ring hollow. Think of the Holy Spirit as the hug 
of the Godhead. It's how God hugs you. He gives you the Holy Spirit. We feel God's love through the Spirit's presence. He says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. Again, realize who you are in Christ. And here is the, you're his son, and here is the ultimate test of sonship. Has God written you into his will? That's how you know you're somebody's son. Have you been written into his will? To me, it would be more than enough if God adopted me just to forgive me and let me eat at the table and live in his house. But at the end of the road, if he wanted to leave his treasure to his own blood relative, to me that would be understandable. But no, And if he gave me 5%, or if he even gave me 10% of the inheritance, that would truly blow my mind. But who could ever dream that God would make me, an adopted son, a joint heir with his own son, Jesus Christ? That just blows my mind. You're a joint heir too. This means that we get a similar share as his only begotten son. What a shocker. And God only asked one thing in return. For a share of his glory, we should accept a share of his sufferings, he tells us. Join heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. To receive the crown, you must bear a cross. But remember, the crosses are nothing compared to the glory. They're nothing compared to the glory. No matter what you're bearing tonight, it's nothing compared to the reward that Jesus has for you. And that's what he tells us in the next few verses. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Always remember, hardships on earth pale in comparison to the glories of Christ. Think of a marathon, all 26 miles of it. The runners tow the starting line. When one of them jumps the gun, oh, it's a false start. But in light of the 26 miles, it's no big deal, is it? When that race is over, your false start won't even be remembered. And that's what the sufferings of this life are like compared to the glories of heaven. Heaven is so heavy, it makes all our earthly hardships seem light as a feather. When we get to heaven, the Christian will be something to see. Just you and I will be amazing, for we will share in the glory of Jesus. We'll be clothed in His glory. Understand, next to the Savior Himself, we'll be the highlight of heaven. This is an amazing truth. Read verse 19. He says, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. I like how the Phillips translation renders verse 19. It says this, The whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. It's amazing. One day we're going to lose this flesh. And we're going to be clothed with glory, with a glorified body that's in harmony with the inner man who's new and perfect. And thus we'll live a glorious life. And all heaven will gawk and and be amazed at God's grace in our lives. Verse 20 is an important verse. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. In the beginning, all creation was in harmony with its creator. 
But sin threw a wrench in the gears. Adam's sin caused the creation to fall. God's perfectly ordered universe became subject to randomness. Nature went berserk. Mother Nature came down with a bad case of PMS. That's what happened. And today, every time a tree creaks, every time a dog howls at the moon, it's a sign that all is not right. All of nature is groaning for the redemption. Because of sin, the gentle rain that waters your lawn is also the source of floods that wipe out a city. The wind that lifts a kite can knock over your house in a tornado. Today, nature is a mixture of beauty and brutality, majesty and monstrosity. It's true, that sweet little old lady, Mother Nature, is the number one perpetrator now of random acts of violence. And will be as long as we're living in a fallen world. Paul continues, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Notice, Jesus didn't just die on the cross to save us. He died to redeem the universe, to restore everything that sin has touched. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Julie Andrews sang, the hills are alive with the sound of music. But today the hills sing in a minor key. All creation is in the bondage of corruption. We live in a fallen world that longs to be free. And today creation's song is a dirge. It groans, wailing for its redemption. Longing for the day when God will restore it to its original state. Not only that. But we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. And we also groan, don't we? We feel the aches and pains of our fallen state. The older I get, the more I groan. Sometimes I feel like my spirit's like a hot air balloon. One day I'll soar to heaven, but my body right now is like a sandbag weighing me down. I groan not just to be free. Suicide would do that. My hope is to be clothed in the glory of my Lord Jesus. I groan for the redemption of my body. That's the hope of every believer. And then verse 24. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see... We eagerly wait for it with perseverance. In other words, God has a purpose for our groaning. Hey, groaning causes growing. The first, you know, you've heard of growing pains? Sure you have. When we grapple with yet-to-be-realized hopes, we grow. We learn endurance. We learn perseverance. You see, the first half of Romans chapter 8 taught us How that God, through His Spirit, adopts us into His family. But now in the last half of the chapter, it describes how we are adapted into His family. He uses trials. And He uses difficulties to build character in our lives. There are actually three groanings here in Romans chapter 8. We've discussed two already. There's the groaning around us within nature. And there's the groaning within us. 
And the third type of groaning is the Spirit's groaning on behalf of us, which Paul mentions next. For likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. See, when our minds are so befuddled that we don't know how to pray, or when our hearts are so heavy that we're overwhelmed with emotion, the Spirit will groan for us. Here's how this works in my life. In desperate times, when I don't know how to pray, I just groan. Sometimes I just groan. I just sigh. I just vocalize my raw emotion. And then I trust the Holy Spirit to translate those feelings into God's will. The Holy Spirit is the perfect prayer partner. Here it says that He intercedes for our groanings. In verse 27, Now he who searches the hearts knows the mind of the, what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit can take our groans and turn them into effective prayers. He intercedes for us before God. I'll bet verse 28 is familiar ground. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. In the lives of God's children, He takes all of our circumstances, both pleasant and painful, and He works them together for our good and for His glory. Notice each word here in verse 28 is strategic. God works not a few things, not some things, not even most things. He works all things together for good. Even that thing that you just can't imagine. God, why did you allow this to happen? Still, God can take that thing. He can work it together with other things and turn it into good. And He works all things together on their own. There are events in our lives from which nothing good results. I admit that. Yet God takes those random and worthless things and puts them together with other things and He turns them into good. Like the ingredients in a cake. On their own, you can't stomach them. Eat flour by itself or eggs or butter. It's disgusting by themselves. But when the baker puts all the components together and slips it in the oven, boy, it turns out all delicious. And the same is true with how God works all things together for good in our lives. And notice God's overarching purpose in all that He does. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Hey, realize you and I were chosen before we existed to be like Jesus. This is your destiny, to be like Jesus. And God is not afraid to use whatever means necessary, even suffering, to accomplish His goal. Verse 30, For moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called, and whom He called, these He also justified, and whom He justified, these He also glorified. For eight chapters, Paul has expounded the wonders of God's grace. He's taken his breath away. He asks in verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? What shall we say to this? This amazing grace. Paul is in awe. And he closes with a flurry of questions. Designed not necessarily to be answered, but more to stir us up. To stir up our appreciation for God's grace and God's wisdom. 
He begins in verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Don't you love that verse? It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. If God is for us, who can be against us? God trumps all rivals. With Him on our team, we're sure to win. Here's a great quote from Max Licato. He says, God is for you. If there's a tree in heaven, He's carved your name in the bark. We know God has a tattoo. Isaiah 49 verse 16 tells us, I've written your name on my hand. Can you imagine that? God has a sandy tattoo. Did you know that? He does. Don't ever think that God holds a grudge against you or that he's angry at you or he's washed his hands of you or he's written you out of the books. Not so. God is for you. And then verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If God gave his most precious possession, his only son, do you really think he's going to get stingy with the rent that you need? Or the good job you're praying for? Or a Christian spouse? Why doubt his generosity after he's been so amazingly generous so far? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. I mean, there are folks I've met who might want to throw rocks at me, might want to condemn me. Good thing they're not the judge. God is the judge. And Paul assures us that God isn't about condemning us or denouncing us. If Jesus died to save us, then why would God want to stone us? God justifies. You know what that means? We, we learned about it in chapter 4 or chapter 3. He treats me just as if I'd never sinned. Verse 34, he who, is, he, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Think of how far Jesus traveled. It was such a long road from heaven to the manger to a cross to heaven's throne. All to ensure our salvation. After going to such extremes to win us for himself. Why do you think he'd want to condemn us now? No way. For verse 35 tells us, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? In the fourth century, a godly man, his name was John Chrysostom, he preached so strongly against sin that he offended Rome's emperor and empress. He was called to the palace. And he was told to stop preaching or else he'd be banished from the kingdom. Well, Christostom replied, Sire, you cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. The emperor snapped back, well, then I'll slay you. He said again, no, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God. Then your treasures will be confiscated. Sire, my treasures are in heaven where none can break through and steal. The emperor got really angry. He said, then I'll drive you from man and you'll have no friends left. That you cannot do either. For I have a friend in heaven who has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Chrysostom was eventually banished and he died en route 
But the emperor never forgot the lesson he was taught. You can take nothing from a child of God that is truly important. For nothing can separate us from God's love. In verse 36, Paul quotes Psalm 44, verse 22. Psalm 44, verse 22. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. And this was certainly Paul's life. He suffered much for Jesus' sake. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And Paul's life was exhibit A. Name the trial, and he overcame it with joy and victory. Paul was more than a conqueror. Two truths were paramount in Paul's life. The evil around us will put us down, but the God in our hearts will never let us down. He says, for I am persuaded, Paul was utterly convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, not even the goriest demon out there, nor things present, nor things to come, nothing in my present, nothing in my future, nor height, nor depth. Now, a literal translation of height nor depth would be neither zenith or horizon. And these are provocative terms. The zenith is the point in the sky directly overhead, whereas the horizon is where the circle of the earth meets the sky. When astrologers cast their horoscopes, they do so by studying the positions of the stars and planets in relationship to the earth's zenith and to its horizon. Here Paul is combating occult activity and astrology. You know, sadly, even in modern times, folks still live in bondage to superstition. They think their destiny is tied to the stars. They read their horoscope regularly. Paul is saying to us that no astrologer, that no superstition can separate us from God's love. I like Pastor Donald Gray Barnhouse's comment on verse 39. He says, A true Christian can sit down at a table With 13 people present, spill salt, break a mirror, put an umbrella up inside a room, walk under a ladder, have a black cat walk across his path, and all this can happen to him on Friday the 13th. Yet none of it, not all of it together, can separate us from God's love. Hallelujah. Trust the Lord, not luck. Chance, faith, superstition has no influence on your life if you're in Christ. He concludes chapter 8. Nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Christ Jesus, not even our own sin can separate us from God's love. Hallelujah. God bless you. You're dismissed.